been going through the Beatitudes, eight principles, eight keys to be happy, satisfied, and content in our life. And, you know, we started with the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we're actually going to end today all of the Beatitudes. And there's two gentlemen, two young guys who really have poured their lives into this series. And they started about eight uh, months ago developing not only just the, the, the devotions, but everything that you see in your Living Upside Down book, man, the graphics, the design of it, uh, just kind of putting all of the one groups together and really working hard to make sure that we had an incredible summer. How many of you have had an incredible summer? Let me see your hands, right? How many of you are a little sad that summer's ending? All right, yeah. Yeah, I don't like when summer ends, man. I love the sun. I love the summertime, amen? But we're going into an incredible season at Bethlehem Assembly of God. You know, um, Vinny was talking about, you know, the summer ending, going to school, and how, you know, when we were kids, we didn't like that. It was bittersweet. But I have all sweetness here. Why? Because even though I don't like the summer ending because of the weather, it is so wonderful to see all the folks come back to church in the springtime, in the, in, the, in the fall, and also actually really get back plugged into Grow University and plug back into small groups. And so it's going to be a wonderful time as we get plugged back into ministry, as we get plugged back into all the things that God is doing at Bethlehem Assembly of God. And uh, so actually this is the last of the eight keys, and I want you to know this is a very powerful key. And uh, you, talk, you talk about how can I be happy understanding this key. Well, I know that Vinny and Namit are going to help you to understand the true understanding and definition of contentment in the Lord does not come with holding on to your life, but it's actually giving your life for the gospel and for the kingdom of the Lord. But I've asked them tonight, today to come and actually tag team together and speak about blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember the first one, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. The last one, blessed are the persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so they're going to explain it, help us to understand it. And uh, I want to thank them because they have worked so hard in making this series powerful. I want you to give it up for Vinny and Namit as they come and share how God is working in their life through Beatitude number eight. Amen. There's a buzz in the city that day, at least amongst the people who knew what was happening. There was one young person in particular, must have been high school age, if we were defining them by our standards, maybe college age. But what happened was he really wanted to find some value in his life, and so he clung closely to a couple of people who were influential. And so when something happened that day, he said, hey, you're the youngest, you're the most fit, you're the quickest, you can run for the longest, go and find everybody who you know come and are part of our community. Go and find them and bring them here. And so this young man was running from place to place around the city. He was running into shops. He was running uh, up to people that were just on the side of the street, just creating trinkets just to sell. Some people who were shopping for their food for the week, for the day. As he ran in, he would grab somebody, and they would hear what was happening, and they'd follow him out. And slowly, he started to build up a crowd, but, but they weren't staying with him. They were going off in little pockets of two or three people, and they were finding the people they knew. And they were all meeting and coming together in the same place. And as they made their way there, man, it's, it's funny how, how we work as humans. You could tell when somebody is up to something. When there's two or three people who all look like, you know, a little too excited about something, 
and they're just all going in the same direction, you know something's going to happen. You know either something exciting and entertaining or something illegal is going to happen, and you just want to see what it is. We're just curious in that way. And so as they came together, they started trickling in and, and meeting in their normal gathering place over the next hour or two hours. As they came there, people saw little pockets of people all going to the same place, and they were curious, and they would poke their head in and say, what's going on? All trying to figure out what was happening that day. They didn't know at that time, but what they were doing, we would consider history. We would consider something awesome was happening. But they just thought it was another day. They just were excited about something. And so as they were told, they would pack up their shops. They would send people away from their stores. They'd say, hey, tomorrow, 10% off if you come back. Uh, but something's happening right now. It's an emergency, and I have to go. And so they would head out. Other people, it was a little harder for them to, to get off of work. Some of them were guards in the prison. And so they had to be covered because if, if they weren't and they abandoned their post, they'd be put to death for it. But what was happening was exciting and was drawing them. And so they found their way to get coverage and they made their way to the gathering as well. Just then, one man walks in. He's a jailer with his wife. They just walk in quietly and you wouldn't, wouldn't capture your attention if they walked in here today. And they went and they sat down. Behind them were their kids following closely. And behind their kids were all the workers of their house. See, he wanted everyone to make sure they were there because what was happening was more important. I don't care if when I get home, dinner's not ready because you guys all need to experience this. And say so they all came and they sat down. The elders waited for everybody to arrive because they wanted to make sure nobody missed it. Just then, one of the elders walks up holding a scroll. Scroll's still sealed. They didn't need to open it to know who it was from. It was sealed with a, with a ring, and they knew that seal. It was a seal of somebody important to them. And so they knew who it was from, and they had been hearing rumors about what happened to him for months. See, in the ancient times, the only way they got in information was this game of telephone, and you never knew what was true and what wasn't true. And so as that started and kept spreading and spreading, and they didn't know if they had the truth or they had something false that was happening, and now they have a letter. And the letter's going to tell them, hopefully, what they need to know. So they sit down, and the elder walks up. And as he breaks the seal, everybody gets silent. All of their attention is on what this letter's going to say. Nobody had to tell them to quiet down. They just knew because they were there for that reason. And so there's only about 100 of them there, maybe less. But the noise that they had sounded like thousands and died just like that. The elder opened the scroll and he began reading. And the people who were drawn to this place because they saw people gathering, they just laughed and walked away. All of this for a letter. And he began to read and he starts reading through all the, the pleasantries. See, this was a small church, but they were connected to the person who founded them. They were a small church and they would only be visited by their founder a couple of times. They'd get this one letter. This was different. This didn't happen. A letter for all of them. And they would read it out loud to everybody. They'd read it through multiple times that day. As the elder was reading and he got through the pleasantries, the welcome, the greeting, the thanking for everything they've done to support him. He gets to this line. 
that connects with the jailer. And while everybody else moves forward, he's stuck in his own mind just thinking about the words that he heard. It said this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. Later, he would read and capture his attention again. Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. To them, these are words written to a friend, to the jailer. Some words written from somebody he knows personally. A friend read by an elder, and it was enough to bring the jailer to tears that day. There were a lot of people in tears that day. They had realized that the rumors they heard about this man that they loved so dearly being imprisoned were true. But for the jailer, it was different. The jailer connected on a different level. And this wasn't a, a man who shows emotion regularly. No, no, no. His wife was staring at him, confused about why he would be showing this emotion in public. He's not a man who does that. He works for the prison. He can't show his emotions like this. And yet over the last 10 years, he's been changing slowly. Not enough for people to see that don't know him personally. But for those of the people that are there, his wife, his kids, they realize that things are changing. And this is the first time they've seen him crying. And he's weeping loudly. And other people are crying because of what they heard and what they knew is now true. But he was crying because he connected in a way that other people didn't. It brought him back 10 years to when he first met Paul, the person who wrote the letter. We're reading this, this letter by Paul to this church. It's a letter of encouragement and direction, letting him, them know updates about what he's been doing, what he's doing now, what they should do about their situation. It's personal for them. You see, we look at this letter, we have it now, and we can study it, and it's written for us, for our benefit. And God has kept it intact so that we can look at it and study it, like the rest of Scripture that was written for our benefit, but not to us. But this is written to him, to them. It's different for them. We look at Scripture and we, we put it in this other category and we go, okay, we'll take it, we'll leave it. See, for them, it meant everything. To them, it was personally about the situations that they were going through. We look at it and we just read, okay, Philippians. That sounds cool. But for them, they knew their context. They knew what was happening. And so this letter is written to them, and this jailer connected with it in a way that other people didn't. And so he thought back 10, 12 years, and he met Paul this one night. The night changed his life. Actually, the guard was going to give up his own life that night until he met Paul. And so for him, while he's crying, he's realizing just how big of an impact Paul is now having. As Paul writes about what's happening in this letter, he knows that, that Paul's in prison, that he's chained to two guards at all times of the day. He's under house arrest. And yet Paul is sharing the gospel with them. And the very people who are in charge of making sure that, that he doesn't go anywhere, that he stays in the house, that he doesn't have contact with people, they're getting changed by the gospel. So the jailer connects with it. I want you to read it yourself. I want you to look at it yourself. We have it 
in another book of Scripture. It's Acts chapter 16. So if you go to Acts chapter 16, I'll give you a little bit of backdrop on who Paul is. Paul started out with this guy named Saul. He's a Jewish guy. He was a young hotshot lawyer. He was the best of the best. He was taught by the, the best teachers of his day. He went to the best schools of his day. He was a Roman citizen, something that wasn't given to Jewish people. And so if you were a Roman citizen, you must have had done something good for the emperor. And so his family has this title of Roman citizen, and yet he's a Jew, and he's trained in multiple languages. And he's next in line, or he's one of the next in line to, to take a seat in the Jewish Sanhedrin, in, the, in their court, in their, their ruling body. This is something that a young person doesn't really know. This is really reserved for some older people, some people who are more established. People 20, 30 years older than him are jealous of where he stands because he's ready and in line to take over. He's the future for them. But anybody who's on top knows that you're not comfortable there, and so he wants to continue to cement who he is and, and the reputation that he's built. And so he finds a need that the Sanhedrin has that, that he can meet. There's this group of people who broke out they're just talking about this Jesus guy. And they didn't like it. Like they thought it was blasphemy and they were waiting for it to die out. And yet three years later, they're still going strong, if not stronger than when they started. And so Paul goes, okay, perfect opportunity. And Paul becomes a terrorist for the Sanhedrin, finding Christians and killing them, torturing them so that they will not live out their faith, so that they will not spread this false doctrine that he believes is being spread. That is up until he gets met by the very presence of God and his entire life gets changed. He becomes a different person on, working under a different name. He becomes a missionary to, to different parts of the world. And on his second trip, his second missionary trip, he goes to a place, it's a vision when he doesn't know where to go, and he get, it's the vision of a man from Macedonia saying, hey, come here and help us. And so he goes and he makes his way to this place called Philippi, and he writes the letter to the church of Philippi. It's called Philippians. We have it in our Bible, and it's the verse we read before. When he gets there, he finds that there's, there's not really a lot of believers there. Usually they would go to the Jewish people first and explain to them that their Messiah has come. And he realizes there's not a lot of them. They don't even have a place where they meet. They actually just go down by the river and they meet there. And so he goes there and he preaches the gospel to some women and some women convert. Meets a woman named Lydia. Lydia is called the seller of purple. To us, that means nothing. To him, it meant this lady's rich. She's got money and she's successful. But he didn't see it that way. He just preached the gospel as to everybody, and she became one of the biggest supporters of Paul. And so when he goes and he's obedient to God, he gets a financial supporter out of it. And she goes, hey, you're going to be staying for me, with me from now on anytime you're here. It's at this time that they're on their way to another prayer meeting, and that's where we pick up in Acts 16, verse 16. I want you to read it and see it yourself. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl, who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Sounds like a good thing, kind of. She's there already telling everybody, Hey, these guys are right. 
But Paul gets pretty annoyed by this, and so uh, it says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you to come out in the name of Jesus. And it came out at that very hour. It's funny that Paul, when really annoyed, does something more spiritual than I do. He casts out demons because he's annoyed. But that doesn't sit well with the people who are making money and using this little girl. And so it says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, that they wouldn't be making money anymore, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received the order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Can you pray? Lord, we thank you that you've given us scripture and you've given us things that we can look into to know who you are and how you work. And so God, we just pray that today you would work and, and speak to us through what you've already given us, through what you've revealed to us about who you are and what your goal is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is where the story gets a little bit more fascinating. Um, they're thrown into prison, Paul and Silas, and probably because of how badly they've been beaten, that they have open wounds on their body that haven't been treated. They can't sleep that night. They're actually uh, probably not even laying down. If they lay down, their flesh is going to stick to whatever they lay on. And so they're standing up at midnight, and what they do is they're singing hymns and they're praying loudly. And eventually what happens is an earthquake comes and, and shakes the prison and all of their chains of all of the prisoners fall off and, and, and the, the doors on all the cells fall off as well. Sounds like a move of God. Sounds like something that God has done say, hey, you've suffered for me, so here's your freedom. Go and be free. And so their escape is already there. But the jailer wakes up, he comes to check on what happened because the earthquake woke him. And when he comes, he sees that the cells are open and being so discouraged by that, knowing, hey, if you're a Roman and you don't do your job, if you're a Roman guard, you're going to be put to death and probably your family as well. And so knowing this, he sees it and goes, it's better for them to think that I was killed in this whole thing. And so he takes his sword out to take his own life. Man, if I'm there, I'm just sitting there like, all right, we're about to be free. But Paul speaks up. Paul goes, hey, that's not necessary. Everybody's still here. We're all here. Like, I don't know what he said to convince other people to not go free, but he did something. I don't know. And he convinced everybody to stay, and everybody's still there. And the jailer recognizes by the action, by the way that they live out their lives, these guys are different. The hymns that they've been singing, the prayers that they've been, been shouting out, this is different. They actually believe this. They actually live by it. This is different than anybody else I've seen. This is weird. And so he notices something different, and he falls at their feet and goes, how can I get this salvation? How can I get this God that you've been talking about and singing to and praying to? And so they point him to Jesus and what Jesus has done. And the guard is moved and says, hey, I, I, it can't end with me. Come speak to my family. And he brings them home and he cleans their wounds that night in his own house. 
The people that were beaten that, he's, that he was keeping there, he allows them into his own house with his kids and with his wife. This sounds like a revenge story. I've read it before in the Bible. And it's not what happens this time. Paul preaches the gospel to the entire family. The entire family accepts it and they're changed. The next day, the police send word and say, hey, let them know that they're free to go. We've realized that they weren't actually doing anything wrong and there's trumped up charges, just let them go. Paul goes, no, I'm not leaving. Remember what we said earlier, Paul's a Roman citizen. Nobody treats a Roman citizen like that. You can't beat a Roman citizen like you can a slave in that time. He needs to be tried. There needs to be evidence. You skipped all of that and you just beat him instead. He goes, no, I'm not leaving. You guys can't treat me this way. And so they come and they personally apologize to them. And I guarantee that every time Paul comes there in the future, they're not going to have any issue with the guard there. He's got something on them now. Those guys can be put to death for what they've done. Paul chooses grace, chooses mercy, and he doesn't carry out what he ought to do or has the right to do. So when the words that we, re that we read are spoken in the public assembly and the guard connects with it, there's a reason why. He sees lives changing like his. He now knows that he's been forgiven both by Paul and by God. He knows that the reason Paul was there was for him and his benefit. You see, he's connected with it on a level that other people just can't. It's taken him 10 years, slowly changing, but he's at the point now where he realizes God's plan for him. You heard, uh, my name's Vinny and I, I'm the youth director here and I've been working with youth for five years. Before that, I was a volunteer youth leader with the youth ministry and before that, I was an in youth group. And so uh, I've been working with youth since I was youth. And something I've realized about youth, it's funny actually, just something I realized about looking at people who are younger than you, like my own kids, is like they really teach you things about yourself. Like for example, one night at dinner, um, my dog likes to jump up and try to steal my daughter's food and uh, Ellie just shoved her down, yelled at her, stop it, get out of here. <laughs> like she didn't make that up, that, that was me. <laughs> she learned that one from me. And so when we look at people who are younger than us, they can often teach us things about ourselves. And what I've realized about youth is a lot of them don't live out what they believe because of fear of persecution. And some of you may be sitting here listening to that story of Paul and say, that's my biggest fear, to be imprisoned for something that I didn't even do wrong, to be imprisoned at all, but especially for something I didn't even do wrong, to be beaten like that, to have any kind of physical thing come against me. And that's my biggest fear in living out Christianity. And so when I talk to, to students, they say it's not that. I don't care what people think about me, but, you know, it's not true. We know that. Everybody cares about what other people think about them. It's just which people is really the biggest question. And so I don't think that principle goes away when you get older. I don't think maturity just gets rid of, oh, how do people think about me and do I fear persecution? I think we actually get better at justifying it. And so now we can cling and hide it better and cling to scriptures uh, about restoration, about, you know, people being delivered, about prosperity. We look at these things and we start thinking, oh, everything that's bad or uncomfortable that comes to us is from the devil and everything that's good is from God. 
That's not really how it works. In Scripture, being persecuted is blessed. There's a blessing to persecution. We've been studying the Beatitudes all summer long. Summer's about to end. The reason I think that, for me, September was always bittersweet because it's football season. Somebody's got to be excited about that, right? Not, not the wise for the most part. But the summer's ending and the Beatitude series is ending and we've been talking about living an upside down life and what if we really live these principles out and what would that look like? And there's a blessing that he says right there in the Beatitudes about people who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 5.10. We're gonna be looking at 5.10 to 12 today. I want you to make note of this word though. It's probably a word you overlooked. It's the word for. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For means that there's a condition to the blessing of persecution. It's not just that if you're persecuted, it's only when you're persecuted for righteousness. He goes on, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Ready for the highlight? Falsely on my account. These words matter. So often we read the beginning but not the end. When people are persecuting you, like, listen, I've been in church long enough, so I know that we have rude people here. And I know we have insensitive people here. When you are persecuted and people don't want to hang out with you, stop saying it's because of Jesus. It's because you're rude and insensitive. You're just a jerk. People don't like you. That's not Jesus. That's you. Don't put that on him. That's not fair. But it's the key to the blessing. The things that they're saying about you better be false. If they say something that they don't like about you, but it's true about you, that, that's not persecution. It's just you. And so there's no blessing there. And you may feel a certain way about it, but just be better. Work on yourself. But it really does matter. Because persecution could be blessed when it's false and because of Christ and because of the way you live. It's not just for people who are insensitive and, and jerks. Uh, even, even people, a lot of times what I see is people getting into arguments over political things and, and all kinds of things online and even in person and just attacking each other about it. And it's like, hey, you're not even listening to what somebody's saying. Like, they don't believe the same things you believe, and you're expecting them to live according to your standard, and then you start getting angry and throwing a, but the Bible says at the end of it, that's, listen, there's a way to say that without being a jerk, and if you're persecuted for being a jerk, it's not because you're just throwing out words at people. It's on you. This is a church, some of you may have heard of them, they're called the Westboro Baptist Church. If you haven't heard of them, you can just Google them. Don't even click their page. Just look at what their website's called. You'll realize people like this are persecuted. They will tell themselves they're Christians being persecuted because of what they believe, but really, they're just jerks. And they pick at people who, who don't believe what they believe, but they say these things like, God hates you. That's the way of picketing. And so they go, and, and I think we're guilty of sometimes this on a smaller level, but we introduce people to Christianity through the law that has no power to save people instead of through the love of Jesus that is the only way to save people. And so you can introduce people to your faith without 
being a jerk about it, and that's where the real blessing of the persecution is. So we have to be careful that we're not creating persecution just for conflict, just because it makes us feel like we're actually living out what the, the Bible says. We don't need to create it. You notice that Paul is persecuted for something he didn't do wrong, for trumped up charges. Men who didn't like that they were changing society for the better, men that didn't like that they freed a young girl who was being used by two older men to make money and was filled with a demon. And that's why they're persecuted. Persecution is also promised. It's not only blessed, but it's also promised. And so we can't get into the mindset of thinking, hey, persecution is a thing of the past that doesn't exist today, because it does. Where is it promised? In 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. John 15.20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will persecute you. Not only that, but it flows from everything we've been studying in the Beatitudes. It's the natural outcome of where we end up. And, and this, the Beatitudes, the upside-down life, the thing we've been looking at is God saying, hey, you have your own values. Uh, let me tell you what the values are of my kingdom. And so he says, hey, if you're poor in spirit, you know your spiritual condition. If you mourn your condition, then you hate the evil that's within you. If you're meek, then you're able to turn your reliance to God instead of just being ruled by, you know, your moral effort or your emotions. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then God's going to fill you with his. If you are filled with God's righteousness, then you start developing into a merciful person. You don't need revenge. If you have mercy flowing from God's righteousness, you start developing a purity in heart. You see God everywhere, and the storyline of redemption comes into reality. If you're pure and you're seeking redemption, you become a peacemaker. You enter hostile situations with love, truth, and offering redemption. And if you're that kind of person, people don't like you. Think about it. You're there with your friends. Everybody's joking around. And then there's that one friend that's like, hey, we shouldn't joke that way. It's not okay. Nobody likes that guy. Nobody wants to hang out with him. But that's often what it takes to be a real peacemaker. And so when you have and you start living out these different qualities of what Jesus calls us to live out, persecution follows. That's where the last beatitude comes in. When you're this kind of person who lives out these things, people won't like you and they'll treat you badly because of it. Why? Because Scripture calls us to be light. Scripture calls us to live these things out and say, these are the principles of God. Let that be a light to other people around you. Depend on Christ and be as like him as you can. John 3, 20 to 21 says this, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be shown and exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. People who desire to live out godly principles are going to drive other people around them to either persecute you or to convert. And it's not something that happens immediately. But when you live out godly principles, people will take notice of it and be encouraged and say, I want to be like that. Or they'll look at it and feel bad about themselves and say, no. So they'll persecute you. People love evil things. People love justifying themselves. And so when you live out godliness, it indicts people around you who live other ways. Here's how it works for me. I go out, I have dinner with some friends, I, we go to get dessert. All of us want dessert, it's amazing. We all go get ice cream. Then there's always that one friend who right in the middle of you ordering like extra Oreos on your ice cream is like, oh no, 
I just want celery sticks. Like, I, I'm about my body, you know? And all of a sudden, you feel a way about yourself because you're just, what? Like, they do it by weight now, and it's like $30 because you just dump all the Oreos on top. But when you see people who live out things that, that, that are good, you start feeling a certain way about yourself. Everybody does it. You can either use it to encourage yourself or to say, oh, yeah, I'm not that good. But when you feel like you're not that good, you want to feel good about yourself again. And so the reason persecution comes is because people want to feel good about themselves. So, hey, if they can annoy you or, or show that you're not as patient as you say or say that you do lie sometimes or you say things to get your own way instead of, you know, what everybody wants to do. If, if they can show that about you, that you're not all that you say you are, they'll feel better about themselves. They don't have to live the way you're living. They just have to know you're not living quite as closely as you think you are. And so if you live a life full of self-control, you're going to indict people around you who have no control over themselves. If you practice chastity, your life is going to be a statement to people around you who love uncommitted sex. If you speak with compassion, unknowingly, you're going to attack people who are calloused. If you're honest, you're going to anger people who are self-seeking. People will put you down to prove or to feel better about themselves. And this, this put down will come in different ways. And we just read about one of them, which is physical. Persecution can come physically. They're going to attack you to do physical harm to discourage you from serving God, just like they did to Paul in Philippi. It can also happen emotionally. They're going to attack and remove things from you, like acceptance, or your friends won't like you anymore. They're going to take peace away from you by calling you names or, or threatening you. All of this is to make you not live out what the scriptures are telling you to live out. It's funny how that one's kind of, I can see it at work. See, sometimes I, I, I work here, and so on Sunday, sometimes I, I walk around and I'll see some students who are not anywhere. They're just roaming around. So I'm like, hey guys, where are you supposed to be? Did you guys go to service yet? There's always two people there. I don't know why, but there's always two. One of them, you could tell on their face that they want to tell you the truth, but they feel weird about it. The other one's quick on their feet. Oh, yeah, we're serving in kids' ministry. We're on the way over there. <laughs> no, you're not. Come on. Like, they're walking towards Rockaway. It's the wrong direction. The other one's like, no, we haven't been at service. We should be going. And then the one who's quick on their feet always turns and goes, you idiot, man. Or what? Just don't even open your mouth. You could have said this. You could have said this. You could have just been quiet. We would have been fine. We would have gotten what we wanted. The funny thing is, this is a true story. It happened a couple of months ago. And then last week, we're here. We're serving at VBS. And I see the same kid who wanted to be on us the first time. And I go to the back, and everybody's playing basketball. I'm like, hey, guys, where are you supposed to be? Because they're supposed to be helping. There's no kids there, just all the youth, of course. So I find them, I say, hey, where are you supposed to be? They're like, oh, yeah, we're doing games. We're waiting for kids to come out. So I go one by one, where are you supposed to be? Where are you supposed to be? And then there's the one kid. Yeah, I'm supposed to be with fourth grade. I'm like, all right, why don't you go in and start helping because they're probably undermanned right now because you're out here playing basketball. And so the same kid who two months ago was called an idiot for not lying to get what he wanted calls the other kid, hey, you're an idiot, man. You could have just said you were helping with games. But it's funny how just you know, just on a very small scale, a lot of people wouldn't even call that persecution, but you were called an idiot, so now you're adopting a lifestyle of lying rather than telling the truth, and all of a sudden, the way you live out your faith has been changed. You'll also be attacked on, from a mental capacity. You can't really believe that. 
That, what you believe about the Bible is so old and it's out of date. Come on. Nobody believes that. Science has disproven that. And there's arguments about all these things, but people will attack you based on what you think and based on the way you decide to live your life. I think it all leads to spiritual change. And getting you to doubt God is really all the devil needs to do. That's what he did with Adam and Eve. They took the rest for themselves. Did God really say that? Really? And so for me, I think it, sometimes this develops with maturity and sometimes it just doesn't develop at all. But uh, I'm going to offer this, this way to look at things through a new perspective. It's really just saying how we look at things already and how we should be. It's called 5555. The first one is we look at things through a five-hour plan. How are the decisions I'm making now going to impact me within the next five hours or less? And so when the kid lies, he's, he's saying, oh, no, I just want to do what I want to do right now. But he's not realizing how that impacts him further than five hours down the line. And so they make decisions based on how, how do I want to live for the next five hours? The next one's the five-year plan. When I was in college, this is all I heard about. Every class I went to was, what's your five-year plan? It's like, I don't know, man, I'm in college. <laughs> I signed up for business school because, you know, business is not going to go out of business, so might as well. So what's your five-year plan? I don't, I don't know. But we focus on where we want to be in five years, and we start making decisions now based on where we want to be five years from now. Some people would call that maturity. Most people would call this maturity the 50-year plan. Where do we want to be 50 years from now? And most people would look at people who think and make decisions now based on where they want to be 50 years from now as the most mature people they know. And there's nothing wrong with thinking through these steps as long as you don't overlook the 500-year plan. The real question is, where do you want to be 500 years from now? What do you want to be living out 500 years from now? That means eternal. Looking at all your decisions now from the eternal perspective. In 500 years, where am I going to be? And so that's how we get through persecution is remem remembering where we're going to be 500 years from now. And reminding ourselves of the gospel truth now that's going to help us make decisions about where we want to be in 500 years. But there's also some practical good parts of, of, of being persecuted. One is the maturity of the believer. It matures you as a believer when you have no option but to rely on God. And it develops a strength in your spirit that doesn't give up easily or doesn't give in easily. It's also a witness to the lost. It leaves people asking why. Why are you living this way? Why are you living differently? There's a pastor I really like. He tells this story. And, and it's about how we ought to be living. Because once we really believe in Christianity, we're going to live out the things that we just looked at for the last eight weeks. The Beatitudes. And he says this. He goes, I have two daughters. I was going out and both of their rooms were a mess. And I went to my two daughters and I said, hey, clean your room. I'll be back in two hours. And so dad goes out and he comes back. And when he comes back, he goes to his first daughter's room and he sees that it's clean. He goes, that's awesome. We're going to celebrate tonight. I'm going to take you for ice cream because you were good. He goes to the second daughter's room and it's a mess. He goes, what happened? What happened here? She goes, dad, I really care about what you say. I remembered it. You told me to clean my room. How you live matters. And if you just remember the things God say, but you don't live it out, what, what is that? That's nothing. C.S. Lewis, um, he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters, and it's, uh, it's a story that he invented from one demon writing to another demon about how to impact churchgoers and how to get them from being people of impact on other people. 
And the thing that this wise demon is telling this young up-and-coming demon is this. Keep them comfortable. If you keep them comfortable, let them go to their church service, let them sit there, let them get in their air condition, let them do what they need to do. If you keep them comfortable, they won't make any impact on God, on the kingdom of God. And so we want to hear more practically about somebody who's going through this, somebody who's cleaning their room, somebody who had to give up a lot for his faith. So Namit's going to come up and he's going to share a little bit right now. Would you give it up for him? I've gotten into. I thought my relationship with God was what I defined it to be. I thought I get to decide, here's where we go, here's what we do, here's how I grow, here's how you bless me. And nothing could be further from the truth. I want to read you a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But suddenly, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to be making any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throw out the new wing here, put up an extra floor there, run up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I knew what God needed to work on when I first became a Christian. It was pretty evident. But the way that God has transformed my life and the person that he has made me now was not of my own doing. It was not of my own choosing. I was born in India, moved here when I was three, so I can't really claim the fact that I was, you know, that I, that I grew up in India. Um, and I grew up in a, in a Hindu home. My dad is probably the most uh, religious and disciplined person I've ever met. I have never seen him not wake up at six in the morning, recite his 30-minute prayers, and do all of the other things that he would have to do around the house that would take about an hour to an hour and a half, depending on how quickly he was moving. And my mom follows closely second. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was terrified of telling my family what I had done. And I heard over and over, you have to share it with them. You have to bring them into the kingdom of God. You have to be a witness to them. And I'm like, hold up. <laughs> Let me just process the fact that I have to tell my family something that they have never heard of before. So it took me a year to tell my, to tell my parents that I became a Christian. I had to lie to them when I was going to church. And they would have preferred me hearing that I was going to parties than coming to church. A year had passed. I finally told my parents. And to my surprise... Their answer was, okay. I thought it was good. And then my family started speaking a narrative over me of, well, we worship here, we praise God here, and you praise God over there, so we're fine. And suddenly the exclusivity of Jesus became an issue because what they thought was, yeah, all of us are worshiping the same God, you're just doing it at a different place. God has come to bless us and to benefit us, and he fits in our nice, neat little compartment of life. 
The gospel told me something entirely different. The gospel told me that I am his. The gospel told me that he gets to determine what my life is. The gospel tells me that because Jesus gave up his life, I now find my life in him. So he gets to call the shots. If I played no part in my salvation, there's nothing that is hands off when it comes to Jesus. I don't believe in multiple gods. I believe in one. So you could see how this would be an uncomfortable and awkward conversation at the dinner table. My parents wanted me to be a doctor, which is no surprise, given that I'm Indian. Um, <laughs> so I spent two years justifying, like what Vinny said, man, when we don't want to live the way that God wants us to live, we justify living different. So I remember telling myself, well, I'm going to get a degree in medicine, and I'm going to open up a practice, and I'm going to serve God that way. God didn't ask me to do that. He didn't even give me remotely any desires close to doing that, yet I was convinced that's what God wanted me to do. Two years in, I started talking to the girl who I am now married to, and she was like, what is the matter with you? I love her. She's so transparent. She's beautiful. She hurts in all the good ways. And she goes, what is the matter with you? Like, you have an internship. You're in the pre-med program, but you hate it. You don't talk about medicine. You don't talk about any of the things that you should talk about loving if you're going to be a doctor. Every time you go to your internship site, you're excited to come back. You shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I had such a passion to just be on campus. I had such a passion to have conversation with people that did not agree with me and just talk about faith, talk about different areas of life. I remember telling my parents, hey, I'm not going to be a doctor anymore. I'm going to pursue a life of ministry. One, they didn't know what ministry was. They don't know that word. That word does not really exist in our vocabulary. But my mom had to now grieve the fact that all of her hopes and dreams in me were dead. My mom got so sick that year after me telling her that news that she was sick for about six months, bedridden for four. She couldn't cope with what I had told her. She couldn't understand that my life was going to look different than the way that she had wanted it to. Then I remember introducing Asha, my wife, to my family. Now, one of the great things about Indian culture is that family is so prioritized. One of the things that I hate about it, if I'm honest, is you're only supported when you agree. See, in our culture, it's customary to keep within the culture, to marry within the culture, and I think that's great. But only when you introduce somebody who's not of that culture, you begin to experience things that you didn't think that you would experience. I remember my family showing adamant disapproval towards my wife when she was my girlfriend. My mom was okay with me dating her, but she was not okay with me marrying her. I remember every significant decision that I had to make for Jesus meant my family not being okay with it. Persecution has taught me two things. One, it taught me how much of a jerk I was. If you want to know if you're being persecuted in the right way, you need to remember where we are in the Beatitudes. Jesus doesn't start the Sermon on the Mount with blessed are the persecuted. He ends the Beatitudes with blessed are the persecuted. And here's why. If you're not living out the Beatitudes, you're going to be persecuted for being a jerk like I was. I was not poor in spirit. I was proud in spirit. I did not mourn my own sin. I pointed out the sin of others. I was not meek. I was explosive. I did not hunger and thirst for righteousness of God. I hungered and thirsted for my own righteousness. I was not merciful. I was vindictive. 
I was not pure in heart. I can't, I don't know what the opposite of that, dirty in heart. Um, I was not a peacemaker. I was a peacekeeper. And my spiritual profile inevitably led me to concluding that my family was my enemy and my culture didn't understand me, so therefore that was my enemy as well. And I remember I couldn't physically escape because I needed a place to live. You know, I needed a roof over my head. My family wasn't going to kick me out. But I ran. I retreated. I barely spent time at home. I spent an unhealthy amount of time at church. Not because I loved Jesus, but because I hated my family. I just didn't want to be near them. And so I made up for it with good religious behavior. Yeah, I'll serve here. Yeah, I'll serve here. What, you need me to stay an extra hour to help clean up? I will gladly do that. All to avoid being with my family. The persecution that I felt from my family forced me to grow because it forced me to realize I was not living the way that Jesus wanted me to live. My life was not controlled by him, it was controlled by me. And what motivated me wasn't the love of Jesus, it was the fear of persecution, like what Vinny said. So I would treat neighbors and strangers better than I treated my own family. I did not want the good for my family. I did not want to be present in my family. I did not want to love my family. I was convinced, God, you made a mistake. Like, you were good with the whole, like, sovereignty of the universe thing. Like, you were good with what you did for Jesus. You were good for everybody else in my life, but you made a mistake birthing me in the family that you did and in the culture that you did. Because my, my, my family doesn't accept me and my culture doesn't understand me. Why do I feel so out of place where I am? Persecution forced me to grow because it showed me how differently I was living than the way that Jesus wanted me to. After understanding that, being able to develop a heart that loves my family, that doesn't want to see them as my enemy, but wants to love them into the kingdom of God. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about what that looked like in my personal life. But it forced me to realize that I was a jerk. See, it's easy to point out the sin of others, but if somebody else's sin bothers you more than your own, you have forgotten the gospel like I did for many years. It forced me to grow. The second thing is that it deepened my dependence on Jesus like nothing has ever done before. I was listening to a conversation being had at InterVarsity's uh, missions conference. It's called Urbana. I think it was 2015 or 2018. I don't remember. And the person was sharing a story about a conversation that she had had with a, an Asian missionary to another Asian country and the topic of American Christianity came up, and that person had very few nice things to say about American Christianity, if I'm honest. And one of the things that that person said was, you know what I find so interesting about American Christians and about American Christianity? Most, not all, is American Christians have plans A through Z lined up. And sometimes they'll invite God into those plans. See, we're not like that. We don't have those kind of luxuries, and we wouldn't even want them. See, our ministry, our calling, our life, our faith, it's set up in such a way where if God doesn't show up, we're done. We don't get the luxury of a plan B. We don't get the luxury of something else. We can't default to something else. It's either God or nothing. I'm not there yet, but that's the kind of faith that I want to have. That's the kind of faith that I want to have, where dependence on God is the only thing that I can rely on. I remember coming home after having blowouts with my family 
and sharing my story with some of the trusted people in my life. The only issue was they came from Christian families. Their parents or relatives, they were pastors, they were churchgoers, they were missionaries. And the thing that was celebrated in Christian culture was damned in my culture. And I remember coming home going, God, you've given me such a great support system. Like, I lack no good thing in you. What I don't get from my family, I get somewhere else. But even that doesn't feel like it's enough right now. And what that led me to understand was, God, I can only rely on you for this. A scripture that had been so paramount in my life was when Jesus has given the great commission to his disciples, when he's giving a final goodbye to them. You could, you could feel the emotion in the air when Peter has to look upon Jesus and going, you're really not gonna be here tomorrow? And Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit, but then he also said, for I am always with you. I remember having a conversation with a young adult and they were saying, man, I know Jesus has died for me, but I kind of want to live my life. And I was just like, you don't know that Jesus has died for you. You can say it. You've heard it. It's been prayed over you. You know it intellectually. You know it in your mind. But you don't live like Jesus has died for you because there's nothing else to go to. There's a story of a Chinese general. And one of the, I, I love this story so much. Every time he would go to a different area by boat, they would get on shore, and he would order his men to burn the boats. And what he was declaring in those moments was, we're either going to take what we came here for, or we're going to die trying, but we're not going back. Church, are your boats still standing? If Christianity doesn't work out, do you know what your escape route is? If this thing isn't what it says it is, what is your default? And if you can think of something, you may not be living the way that Jesus wants you to. My invitation for some of you is that you need to burn your boats. That you need to adopt a kind of a dependence on God that only persecution can bring and go, God, if you don't show up, I'm done. If you don't show up, my family is ruined. And we can have a comfortable family. We can have a comfortable marriage. We can have comfortable kids. We can have a comfortable house. I can have a comfortable income. I can have a comfortable way of living. I can drive a comfortable car. Or I can trade all of that. I can give up what I cannot keep and gain what I cannot lose in you. Like I said, I'm not there yet. But I want to have the type of dependence on God. I want to have the kind of dependence on God where I don't have to look to other things. Vin was asked this question a couple of months ago by some of his youth, and they said, bro, how, do you, how are you a pastor here? Man, like, how do you stay in this thing and not get bored of Christianity? You're here all the time. We're here all the time. We're here for, for school. We're here for chapel. We're here for, you know, we, we read scripture for homework. Like, how do you stay in Christianity and not get bored of it? I didn't say anything because that wasn't my conversation. Maybe I should have been a peacekeeper, uh, peacemaker, I don't know. But I didn't say anything, but I thought to myself, man, y'all have too many options. It's easy for you to pick something else. Other people don't get that luxury and they're blessed for it. Here are two ways that I think that we ought to respond today. The first one is to bear witness to persecution. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to his disciples and he says, stay up and watch with me. And he wants them to see a bunch of things. He wants them to see his faith. 
He wants them to see that this is going to lead to his crucifixion and eventually his resurrection. But Jesus also wants them to bear witness to the persecution that is to follow the next few moments. Before he is even hung on the cross, he wants them to see what is about to happen to him. And what do his disciples do? They fall asleep. Man, one of the most dehumanizing things that we can do to people is not watch them when they are in pain. Man, why do you think so many of us avoid eye contact when people ask us deep questions? Because you know, the moment you look at somebody in the eye, it's about to come out. There's something so beautiful and there's something so intimate about looking at people. Don't turn a blind eye, a blind eye towards persecution. You might say, well, I'm not emotionally prepared for that. Like, some of these stories are crazy. Like, how do I even deal with that? Spend some time with people. If you can't do it alone, do it with others. If you can't do it alone, do it with God. He will take care of your emotions. Those are important. I, I profoundly believe in emotional health, but I also believe that sometimes we can use our emotional well-being to distance ourselves from the things that Jesus wants us to interact with and engage in. Don't turn a blind, a blind eye. I don't know why I keep saying blonde. Don't turn a blind eye towards persecution. And secondly, secondly, pray. For those of you that are being persecuted, don't pray for an escape. Pray for endurance. Pray for boldness. Not once in the book of Acts do I see any of Jesus' disciples saying, God, get us out of here. Not once do I see somebody saying, this is too much for me, just remove me. All I see is, God, give me the endurance to keep going so that I can be a witness, so that I can be malleable in your hands to do what you have asked me to do. Pray for endurance, not an escape. See, persecution is a direct, is a direct enemy to what we feel entitled to. Man, like we think that Jesus brings health, wealth, and prosperity. But then when we are faced with the cross, when we are faced with the persecution of others, we think, God, this must not be your plan. This isn't comfortable, this doesn't feel good. We have a spiritual sweet tooth. We love the things that taste good, we love the things that feel good. We love the moments when we are safe in corporate worship, experiencing God, but then when we are around people that disagree with us, we feel like we should just not be here. We're so quick to prioritize happiness over holiness. So if you're being persecuted, or if you are about to be persecuted, you can prepare for that by praying for boldness. And second, pray for your persecutors. In Romans 12, Paul tells us, pray for those who persecute you. Bless them, do not curse them. Man, what would it look like if you prayed that persecutors would become family? Man, what would it look like if God heard your prayers and transformed a callous heart, just like he did to Paul. You do realize that most of your New Testament was written by an ex-terrorist? Yeah. But could you imagine if the people who are right now your enemy, you prayed that they would become family? I had a conversation with my cousin yesterday. I was helping her move into uh, her dorm room. And I was telling her about how much I love my family now. And she was saying, what, what changed? Like, what, how did that happen? Because I remember you were not present. I remember that you were not engaged. I remember you did not care. 
I just told her, Jesus gave me a new heart. Three months before my wedding, my mom told me, I'm never coming to your wedding. I don't want to be a part of your, your life. And you have not been my son since you became a Christian. I said that Jesus was my everything, but that shattered me in such a way where I had to realize, God, I can't live for the approval of my parents. I love them, but my life is not for that. My life is for the kingdom. And I remember at first, I was ready to cut my family off. I remember at first, I was ready. You know what? This is the last straw. Like, I've been around you too much. I've done all that I could for you. I've been praying for you. My church has been praying for you, but this is the last straw. You're done. It would be easier for me to just be hands off and walk away and just not have to deal with this anymore. I'm so grateful that Jesus, through the life of other people, people that bore witness to my persecution, said, hey, that is not Jesus' invitation for you. That's not what he wants you to do for your family. He wants you to see the enemy as family. He wants you to pray that your persecutors would become your family. So I remember praying and fasting for my family. My relationship with my mom is the healthiest that it's ever been. She came to my wedding, first time ever stepping foot in the church. Now, now do we, do we have a long way to go? Absolutely. Has it been brutal? Excruciatingly. But at the same time, let the words of Jesus be a comfort to you that I am always with you. Church, can we bow our heads and close our eyes? You know, sometimes I believe that we can use noise to distract us from hearing from God. We live in a loud culture. We live in a loud country. We come from loud families. And God moves in the loud, but he also moves in the quiet. He moves in the busy, but he also moves in the still. So after feeling what you're feeling, after sensing the impressions that God has been giving you through this message, after hearing what Vinny had to uh, share, after hearing what I had to share, can we just take a moment and just sit in silence, and now it's time for God to speak to you directly. Would you allow him that? Would you allow yourself to be still enough to hear from God?